Amen. Well, again, welcome to Hope Lower Town. Those of you who don't know me, my name is Brian, uh, lead pastor here at Lower Town, and uh, excited to jump into Romans. Uh, we are in week 18, uh, and as I mentioned last week, we are gonna, we've got uh, two more weeks after today in Romans. Uh, we'll finish up Romans chapter 3, and then we'll take uh, the summer off. Uh, looking at different stories and parables uh, in in the Bible, and for the summer, and then we will pick, pick, pick. That's me somehow. Um, we will um, pick up again in Romans in the fall, uh, starting in chapter four. So uh, that's that's what's uh, that's what's going on. Words have meaning. <laughs> I know that might uh, seem obvious, we, we know that, but, but a lot of times there are words or phrases that have a deeper meaning or a double meaning or a more significant meaning. Um, one word that I don't verbalize, thankfully, um, is the word troglodyte. Um, this, this comes from uh, back in the day, uh, you know that Jurassic Park is my favorite movie ever, um, but the second one called The Lost World was... Uh, was also one of my favorites and because it was dinosaurs, right? And dinosaurs are really cool. And, and in, that, in that movie, Ian Malcolm, uh, Jeff Goldblum, he has a daughter, and she uh, gets expelled from a school or gets cut from a gymnastics team, something like that. Later on, she would uh, take out a velociraptor doing the, the uneven bars. It's really awkward scene. But uh, there's a moment, though, where Jeff Goldblum is talking, Ian Malcolm, the character, is talking to his daughter and says, you know, what happened? Why did you get in trouble? And she says, my teacher, she's such a troglodyte. And I had no idea what that meant. But, but Ian Malcolm's response is cruel, but good word usage. And, and I was like, I'm going to start using that word. And I, and then I, but I didn't know what it meant. And then I had to look it up. And it just means like a cave dweller, someone who lives in caves. So it's, like a, it's just kind of like a deep cut of, of, of a word that you probably shouldn't use on somebody else, right? You're, you're a troglodyte, let's not do that. Another phrase or word that uh, we use, uh, at least around these parts, is the, the, the Minneapolis miracle, right? Is any, who in here doesn't know what the Minneapolis miracle is? And it's okay to, to not know what that is. Okay, yeah, that's all right. So there's a handful of you. It's a sports thing, it's a football thing. Back in the day, it was like the, this one time the Vikings had a, 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 got lucky and, and they scored a touchdown against the Saints in the playoffs. They scored a touchdown, they got destroyed the next game in the playoffs, but that, that's not what people remember. They remember this miraculous catch, this Minneapolis miracle where, I don't remember who, who, who caught it, who caught that ball? Diggs, Stefan Diggs who's no longer a Viking. But when you, when you say that phrase, Minneapolis miracle, it, it invokes feelings. I actually remember when it happened. I was preaching, uh, in case you can tell, I'm not a Vikings fan. Um, and I was preaching, it was a Sunday night during the game. And I'm, and I'm sitting here preaching and there was a guy in the sound, uh, nobody that you guys probably even know. And he was doing the sound and all of a sudden he stands up and he's just going crazy. And I'm like, I don't know what I said, but he's <laughs> feeling the spirit right now. And, uh, and then I realized like, oh, the, the Vikings ended up winning that game. So that's, that's what happened. All right, context. This is, this is really important because we're gonna be looking at different words today uh, for specific words or phrases that have some really, really big depth. And so that's what's gonna be happening. I wanna give a little bit of context because the verse that we're gonna be looking at, we're looking at half of a verse today. Now we're gonna be looking at Romans 3.25a, it's just 15 words. And so we need to give a little bit of context. So two weeks ago, I talked about this obituary of self-justification. What does that mean? We just sang about it. 
Martin Luther writes that Psalm 130, and, and it's all about, uh, there is no merit, there is no good. It's only by God's grace and mercy and living alone by mercy. Uh, that's what it is. And so this was the text from a couple of weeks ago. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law. Again, law means, okay, could be laws from the Old Testament, could be do this, don't do that, but it's also the law that the Apostle Paul is gonna say is written on our heart. That even if I'm not Jewish and I don't have these laws, there is the law of God written on my heart that I, I know what I should be doing, but I don't. And so I'm under that law and I fall short of that law, even the laws that I give myself. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, by doing good deeds, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And again, we've been looking at this almost every week. What's the main question of Romans? How can a just God allow anyone into heaven? Paul here is saying, if God is holy and good and just and demands justice, how is it that anyone could ever be in his presence? And he takes two and a half chapters to say God's just, he's holy. The therefore is no one can. You can't do it. You can't be good enough to enter into God's presence. And then we got to last week where we get this amazing phrase, but now. And we looked at last week, Romans 3, 21 through 24. And again, looked at this quote from Martin Luther. The chief point in the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. And so let me read this passage. And, and like we, it's not every week, but sometimes do. If you wouldn't mind, stand with me as I read uh, the text. This first slide is the text we looked at last week. Um, and then the next slide will be the text for this week and next week. Let me read out loud from Romans three twenty one through 26. It says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put for, forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Thank you, you may be seated. So last week, again, looking at verses 21 through 24, kind of this was the outline. How can a just God allow anyone into his presence? Well, God can do this and he does it apart from the law, does it apart from good works, apart from being a good person. And the Old Testament is gonna say this everywhere. The prophets and, the, and Moses tell, tell us that this is true, that, that this has never been, salvation has never been about good works. And then he says, in case you missed it, everybody has fallen short of God's glory. We've all sinned. And so four and five, what is the Old Testament bearing witness to the fact that salvation is only from the grace and mercy of God? That was true then and it's true now. And so then we get to this week's sermon uh, titled it Publicly Displayed, Romans 3, 25a. Again, we're just gonna be looking at the first 15 verses. So just in context, because it's, it, it starts with a, I don't know what, it, what you call it, a dangling modifier. I don't think that's accurate at all. Uh, but I'm gonna go ahead and read all of it to make a little bit of context with 25. 
But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, has been made clear, has taken on flesh apart from the law. Although the law of the Moses and the prophets bear witness to it, they've always said this, that the righteousness, the justice of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So that is our text, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So we're gonna take just kind of four key points of this. The first one, as I mentioned in the title, is publicly displayed. Why would I use that phrase? Where is that in the text? Well, this is, we are reading from, and this, in Romans, we've been doing this, uh, we've been reading from the ESV. So if you have your little, little Bible, oh, and then I have one. I found one. If someone has a, a missing one, uh, one of the Romans things, and you've been taking notes, let me know. I've got it in my bag. Uh, we've been reading, normally, we read from the NIV. Uh, and, and, and it's just a, it's a good middle of the ground, middle of the road. Boy, I don't know why it's doing that. Uh, middle of the road uh, a translation where it's going to take instead of word for word and only thought for thought, it's going to be kind of right in the middle of a translation. It's a good, easy reading translation. That's usually what we preach from. But because of, of the nature of how we're teaching and preaching through Romans, we're getting a little bit more into the words and the text and slowing down. So we've been using the ESV, the English Standard Version. But there's one that's more literal. So if you're really doing a word for word, which this week really uh, uh, accounted for, is the NASB, the New American Standard Bible. And then it says this, whom God displayed publicly or whom God put forward. King James, I think, is put forth. There's a lot of this put forward, but the most literal translation that you can get, interlinear and then the NASB, um, are that God displayed publicly. So what in the world is this idea? What's the point of being displayed? I alluded to this last week, um, noting that salvation is a gift from the old, like even including the Old Testament, it's always, it's always a gift that it was always by the good grace of God and the mercy of God. There's nothing you can do. And I use the illustration of the serpent in the wilderness. Now, when people were bitten as a punishment for the rebellion against God, these snakes came to the camp and they bit them. And then, then God told Moses, put a bronze serpent on a stick and to lift it up into the wilderness. And when people look at that, they'll be healed. There's nothing they can do. You can go to doctors, you can do anything you want. Nothing's gonna work. They're going to die unless they have faith and they believe what I'm saying and they look at the snake, then they will be healed. And so what is this idea of being publicly displayed? I wanna go to the words of Jesus in John chapter three. Verses 9 through 15. I'm stopping short of John 3.16, a very popular verse. But the context here is you have Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. He's a religious leader. He's a pastor, a priest of the day, a teacher of the law. And he comes to Jesus at night, right? The first episode of Nick at night. <laughs> and Nicodemus comes at night to Jesus and says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus is like, well, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, how am I supposed to enter back in my mother's womb? And Jesus looks at him like, what are you talking about? Yeah, that's what I, yeah, that's clearly what I'm implying. No, 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 let's read this in the text. Let's look at the Old Testament. Um, this is here everywhere, right? And Nicodemus says to them, how, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, 
We speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. You say, this is all in the text. It's all in the Old Testament. It's here clear as day. And if you can't even understand it in black and white, how in the world are you supposed to understand the spiritual side of it? If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the son of man. That was Jesus' favorite title for himself. He's talking about himself. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Again, you've got this image of the serpent being lifted up on the stick and the faith that it would have taken these individuals to, to, to put away their, their own remedies for this the situation, the poison that's taken over their system, to have to walk to a certain place to be able to get a glimpse of this serpent on a stick. Jesus saying, and so, the same free grace salvation of God in the Old Testament is true now of me so must the son of man be lifted up, be put on display so that people can see me and believe. This is all over the place, this language in Hebrews. We recently preached through Hebrews recently. It was probably two, three years ago now. Hebrews chapter 12 though says this, consider him, look on him, look to him. That phrase is over and over in the book of Hebrews. Look to him, see him publicly displayed. Look to him, consider him who endured from sitters such hostility against himself. So you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. He's saying, Jesus, Jesus went through all these temptations and the suffering perfectly, perfectly. So when you're tempted, when you're struggling with life in your own situation, you may be going through the author of Hebrews saying, look to him. See him who's high and lifted up, he who's on the cross, but no longer on the cross. He came off the cross and rose from the dead. Look to him, public display of sacrifice. The second word that I wanna look at here is this word of propitiation. Again, Romans 3.25, whom God put forward, whom God publicly displayed as a propitiation. If you look at uh, the definition I apologize, this is from Webster's Dictionary, this definition, propitiation, the act of gaining or regaining the favor or goodwill of someone or something, the act of propitiating, appeasement. All right, so it gives an illustration or an example of the word in a, in a sentence. The sacrifice in propitiation of the gods. This is a, not, not a word that was only for Christianity or Judaism. This was a word that was used all over the place, all other religions talking about the, their gods. Like they were, that needed to be a, a propitiation. God is angry at me for something I did. So I need to do something. I need to give a sacrifice. I need to act or live a certain way to provide a propitiation, appeasement for the gods. The Romans would have been very familiar with this term. There was actually a goddess, Melinoian, Melino, was a frightful <laughs> underworld goddess who presided over propitiations. She literally, I didn't know this. I was just looking up other gods and how Greeks and Romans would have propitiated. I was looking that up. And there was actually a goddess of propitiation, right? And I was like, oh, well, that works too, I guess, right? 
She was a frightful underworld goddess who presided over propitiations offered to the ghost of the dead. Okay, so you would have a problem with somebody and if that somebody died and you felt guilty over this relationship that you didn't get to appease while they were alive, well, then you would go to her and you would make a sacrifice on behalf of the dead. Okay, There's a, she, she, over, she presided over the propitiations, the appeasements offered to the ghost of the dead. And that night she wandered the earth with her train of ghosts striking fear into the hearts of men. I don't know what I am doing. I apologize. All right. It's probably going to keep happening. I, so I'm just going to keep going. So that's what's happening. Now, we, in week six, okay, 13 weeks ago, it was 12 weeks ago as far as Romans, but then there was Easter in there. So 13 weeks ago, we looked specifically at this idea of what is the wrath of God. And usually people think wrath, and they go to the first definition of Webster, strong, vengeful anger or indignation. Wrath, flying off the handle, angry, furious, indignant. That's usually what people think of of wrath, but that's not the God of the Bible kind of wrath. The second definition is far more fitting. This, see, now now I remember I kept messing this word up too. Retributary, (laughs) retributary, I can't say it. Why can't I not say this word? That word, punishment for an offense or a crime. Divine chastisement, divine chastisement. So God is right, he's holy, he's just. And then people commit sin against him. We go against him and then he then in a holy, good, justifiable wrath, not flying off the handle, we deserve this wrath. He demands uh, justice. He demands payment for crimes committed against him. So what's this have to do with the propitiation? What are we talking about? Douglas Moo in his book, uh, experiencing his commentary, experiencing the book of Romans, has a whole title here, Linguistics and the Meaning of Romans 3.25. And he says this, in my exposition of verse 25, I've argued that the Greek word helisterion alludes both to the idea of propitiation and to the Old Testament mercy seat or atonement cover. Okay, so he's arguing that there's a double deeper meaning here to this word propitiation. Propitiation here isn't just appeasement of God's wrath. There's something else going on here, right? There's more than meets the eye that's going on. A little Transformers thing going on. And it goes uh, to this, right? This is Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? You have the, this lost ark, right? But it wasn't lost a long time ago. It, was, it dwelt in the camp. And so what, what he's talking about, uh, uh, Doug, Douglas Moo here, is saying that the mercy seat or the atonement cover. So underneath it is going to be the, this Ark of the Covenant, this, the testimony underneath. And the mercy seat is the lid or the cover where the, those two cherubim winged things are at over the cover. That was the mercy seat. So he's saying this idea of propitiation is deeply linked to this idea of mercy seat. He goes on and says this, to propitiate means to placate someone's wrath as in the sentence, I propitiated my wife's wrath by taking her out to dinner. (laughs) We can talk about Douglas Moo's marriage later, but I think we understand the point. Propitiation means to placate someone's wrath. If I could placate, I don't know if my wife's ever been wrathful for me, but just, oh, I guess I'd take her out to dinner. I guess we're good now. Uh, 
The Greeks used the word to refer to memorials or sacrifices that were intended to placate the wrath of the gods. And Paul's focus on God's wrath in his description of the human dilemma, uh, 118 and 25, which is where we get the both uses of wrath, makes it likely that he refers to Christ as a means of propitiation here. Christ is the means of propitiation because the Greeks portrayed their gods as all too human in their petty jealousies, intrigues, and self-seeking. The wrath they attributed to those gods was often selfishly motivated or senseless. But of course, the biblical view of the true God is quite different. Attributed to him, wrath is not an uncontrolled emotion but the settled and necessary reaction of a holy God to the sin of any kind. He's not flying off the handle. How can a just God allow anyone into his presence because he's holy and sin cannot be in his presence. And so there must be payment. There must be an appeasement, but it's not God flying off the handle. And again, what we just sang about and what the entire book of Romans is about is there's nothing that any of us can do to appease or to propitiate for ourselves. We need God to do that for us. And we see that he does this by his blood. Again, back into this, the next phrase, whom God put forward, whom God, Jesus, who God put on display as a propitiation, as a mercy seat by his blood. I want to go back to this word of mercy seat. The word Hilasterion is trans. I'm not trying to get all weird into the Greek here. It's, I don't, I, you, you, I'll do a double click on the NASB and it tells you all this, okay? The word Hilasterion is translated as mercy seat. 21 of the 27 times we find that word in the Septuagint. Septuagint is just a Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Old Testament originally written in Hebrew and Aramaic. Now you've got now second, third generation uh, uh, Jews who don't necessarily know Hebrew and Aramaic the way they once did, that they, they have learned Greek since Alexander the Great uh, conquered the area. Now the Romans came in. Everyone's speaking Greek. All the signs are in Greek. Everything's in Greek. So they said, hey, we need to translate our sacred text into the common language. And so they translate it into Greek, which is what's called the Septuagint, just a fancy word for the 70. And 21 of the 27 times where we have that word sometimes translated uh, 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 propitiation, most often is translated mercy seat. Again, oh, would you mind uh, command 47? Sorry, this, the fire alarm keeps going off. There's no fire, I promise. I checked at seven o'clock this morning. We're good. No, if it was an alarm, it'd be an alarm. That something's going goofy with the, the keypad. Anyways, uh, okay, 21 of the 27 times, mercy seat. Again, this cover of this Ark of the Covenant, okay? I wanna go back to, because what is the mercy seat for? What was the purpose of it? If we go back to Leviticus chapter 16, Leviticus is written to the Levites. It's Leviticus. The Levites were the priests. They were the ones who, who would do all the sacrifices, all the religious activities that would happen at this time in the tabernacle. And there was this really cool day called the Day of Atonement. It was one day out of the year. One day out of the year, not just anybody and not just any priest, but the high priest, only the high priest, one day out of the year was allowed to go into this place, this whole most holies, the Holy of Holies, and enter in and see the mercy seat, but kind of not really see it. Every, listen, 
This guy, Aaron, that we're about to read about, there's a whole lot. You can read Leviticus, all of it, 16 in your own time. Aaron, the high priest though, is the only human being, well, other high priests throughout the time, who would have seen the Ark of the Covenant one day out of the year. That when they would travel, when they would travel with the tabernacle, this moving temple, that they would actually, there's all rules. You can read all about it in Leviticus, that they would take, priests would take the veil that was in between the Holy of Holies and the holy place, and they would take the veil off and they would walk backwards with this thick covering and they would cover the Ark of the Covenant before they would carry it uh, on their shoulders. And there's all these rules and no one was allowed to look at this thing. And But on the day of atonement, this one special day, what is this? This day of atonement where the sins of Israel are gonna be atoned for by the blood of a goat, says this, Aaron, the high priest, shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and he shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil. He's gonna go now around the veil. Only one who gets to do this one day out of the year on this day. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimonies, the mercy seat, the kind of the lid, the cover of the testimony. Why does he need to fill the room with smoke? So that he does not die. Right? That's, that's the caveat here. Why does he need to burn incense? Because he cannot look at this thing. Why? The Bible is very explicit. No one can look on God and live. Nobody. And so on this mercy seat, what's called the Shekinah glory, it's a fun word to say, Shekinah, the Shekinah glory of God was this mist, this cloud that would hover over the mercy seat. And so you can't even look at this. So you need to burn some incense. Smoke needs to fill the room. Why? So you don't die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bowl and sprinkle it with his fingers in the front of the mercy seat and on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his fingers seven times. So again, just if you can try to image this, just kind of an outline of it in the, in the front, you've got this, uh, where there would be a burnt offering. Again, only priests were allowed in this area. You had a burnt, this is all open covering out here in the outer courtyard. Burnt offering, there was a big basin full of water. And then you'd enter into the holy place where you had a table of showbread, a big menorah, and then you had um, the altar of incense. And people in the holy place, priests would go in quite regularly and they would pray and perform uh, um, sacrifices and different things and do all these different things with the, with the showbread and the menorah and, and all these things. Again, all in the book of Leviticus. And I, but that other room, that holy of holies, the most holy place is where the Ark of the Covenant would sit, the mercy seat, the Shekinah glory of God would dwell. And that was the one time, one day a year where someone could go in. So this word, that is translated as mercy seat 21 of the 27 times, we find that word in the Septuagint. Again, so what is the mercy seat? We just looked at all the history of that. But what we can see is that this day of atonement is equivalent with the mercy seat. The mercy seat was only ever used on the day of atonement. The mercy seat was only ever interacted with when the sins of the Israelites were being forgiven. And the whole point of this, what Paul is trying to say in this text, whom God, Jesus, whom God publicly displays as a propitiation, that's this word, as a mercy seat by his blood. That Jesus is the New Testament mercy seat. Jesus is our mercy seat. He is the one who takes care of our sin problem. 
He's the one who does that. I can't do it. How can I atone for my sin? How can I placate the gods? I can't. Only God can do that. He is the only one. How can a just God allow anyone into his presence the same way that Aaron was allowed into his presence? A sacrifice on the mercy seat. Jesus is our propitiation. Jesus is our mercy seat. He pays for our sins. He atones for our sins. He propitiates on our behalf. He becomes the mercy seat covered in blood, but not just the blood of some bull or goat or lamb. It is by his blood, his blood, that the lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. Jesus talks about this in Luke chapter eight. He's telling a parable, again, to some religious leaders. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Again, looking at Martin Luther's song, right? I, I, I'm not by my, my own merit. I'm a good person. I can work my fingers down to the bone. Nothing I did could ever atone. I'm, I'm good. I can't. They thought they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. So he tells this story. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee one a religious leader, one a pastor, and the other a tax collector. The other day, uh, it was maybe yesterday, Henry, we were, he, wanted to, he had some money and he was gonna spend some of his money. And Angel said, hey, you know, from now on, when, we, when you earn money, we're gonna start putting in three envelopes. One is for you to have to spend, one is gonna be to save, and one is gonna be for you to give. And he was like, give? You know, like, who would I? Well, was so like people who don't, you know, have as much as you and, and people that, you know, you might wanna get a present for or whatever. And, um, and so we were like, who, who else could you maybe um, give, give money to? And he was like, the tax collectors. And I was like, what? Where did that come from? He listens to these um, like Christian kids stories. And apparently they were talking about tax collectors. Uh, it's like, well, they're, I mean, they're not bad, man. It's just, okay, I'm sure you get it. But in the context, the tax collectors in, in, in first century Israel were the worst of the worst. They were traitors. They were Jews who were collecting taxes for the Roman government and invading, occupying army. Their friends, their neighbors were collecting taxes for them. They were the worst of the worst. So you've got a Pharisee, this religious leader and a traitor. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I'm thank, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And if you read Leviticus, they're not required to fast twice a week, but just once. They're not required to give tithes on everything they get. But he's saying, I go above and beyond. Look how good I am. Look at my own merit. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, right? this, this form of submission and humility, saying, God be merciful. In the Greek, that is the same exact word for mercy seat and propitiation. God be merciful. Be a mercy seat to me, a sinner. And how do we know that? Is that is he just saying, I think he might just be saying, no, just be merciful. But look what Jesus says in verse 14. I tell you, parable's over. He's given a commentary. Now I tell you, this man, this tax collector went down to his house justified. He went down to his house right before God as if he's never sinned rather than the other. Why would that be? Because God is merciful? No, because he is a mercy seat. He is our propitiation 
For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The last phrase is by faith. Again, we look at this day of atonement. Look at all that they had to do to prepare for this, the sacrifices that would go into this, the covering, all the, all the works that went even around the day of atonement. God is the only one doing the atoning, but there's so much, especially in comparison to what we do. This side of the cross, this side of the, the, the lamb of God being the propitiation versus some bull or goat or lamb. Think about what we have to do. All we have to do is look on Jesus, consider Jesus by faith. We do nothing. We add nothing. Who's the uh, Willy Wonka, right? I award you no points. You lose. Good day, sir. You can't do anything. It's by faith. Hebrews chapter 10 makes this so explicitly clear that day after day, the priests would have to do things over and over and over to atone for the sins of the Israelites. But Hebrews 10 says, but our high priest, Jesus Christ, he commits one sacrifice once for all and he sits down next to the heavenly father. He says, it is finished. So now we get to look on him whom God publicly displayed as our mercy seat by his blood to be received by faith. This last Monday in our our meeting, Olivia Desselkamp, she kind of just mentioned this and and it just kind of stuck with me throughout the week of how many things have we already put our unwavering faith in? Right, just even just this morning, right? I'm gonna wake up. I, last night my phone was doing an update because my phone is my alarm clock, right? If my alarm doesn't wake me up in the morning, especially on a Sunday morning, I'm like, I, I, terrible. Like, I can't sleep at night. I'm tossed. I'm constantly checking my clock. I had no faith in my clock to get me up this morning. Uh, so Angela set up, set a backup for me, right? But my clock did work. It did, it did wake me up when it needed to. But I had faith when I got into the shower, there'd be hot water. If I thought there's a chance that this might be cold, freezing water, I don't know if I would have taken a shower this morning. I had faith that my Jeep was going to start. I had a little faith that it would get me here, but I had faith that it would start. I had faith that you guys would show up. (laughs) You're having faith right now, I think, maybe not unwavering, that the pew that you're sitting in is going to hold you when you sit down. But when it comes to my anxieties or my fears, uh, I don't know if I can put that kind of faith in God. You know, God, I can trust you with a lot, but not everything. I don't know if I could put my faith in you with that. My temptations, I don't know. I feel like I need to bear some of that. My wife, my kids, my career. This text is saying, look to Jesus, (laughs) right? And we have to ask the question, why is it so hard to put our unwavering faith in Jesus? For everything. Right, I think we might say, well, yeah, when it comes to my salvation, justification, yeah, sure, I, I put my faith in Jesus 100%. I look to him. He's the author. He's the beginner. He's the writer of my faith. He starts the faith in me and he's gonna finish my faith. He's gonna end my faith. He does it all. I get that. But, but now, now the things that I would do in my daily life, eh, I don't know if I can trust him with all of that stuff. We look to ourselves and we say, I got this. I used this illustration maybe five years ago, but I'm gonna use it again because it's so good. 
of little, little, little brother. Now back in the day, I know I'm, I'm, I'm dating myself. I'm aging myself. Uh, there used to be this uh, website. It was back in the, in the aughts uh, when the internet was new. And there was a website called Homestar Runner. Anyone know Homestar Runner? Okay. Homestar Runner, I know a lot of you are like, I don't know what in the world you're talking about. I understand that. Homestar Runner was just a, 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 a cartoonish kind of character, but funny. It was funny in the, in the aughts. It's still funny. And then he had a, a buddy who wasn't really much of a buddy. He was kind of like an anti-hero, uh, Strong Bad. And Strong Bad in this one episode says, I'm going to do, I, I can make Homestar Runner cry anytime I want. All I have to do is show him this picture of little brother. And little brother is a one-legged dog who's, who's in a puddle of his own tears and drool. And he's this little bubble, right? I can make it on my own. I got news for you, little brother. You can't. You cannot make it on your own. And, and us, church, we cannot be little brother. We cannot make it on our own. We can't justify ourselves on our own and we can't fight sin on our own. I've, it's been a while since I've said this, but we are saved by grace. We are a community of believers that helps each other, that our faith is personal, but it is never meant to be private, that we share this together. We share our struggles with one another we share our burdens with one another so we can help each other out in the name of God and Jesus. We cannot do it on our own. We can't fight sin on our own. We can't save ourselves on our own. We're all a one-legged dog that thinks there's a shred of hope for me that I can save myself when it's just not possible. You can't make it on your own. So gospel application. But now, because of Jesus, whom God put forward who God publicly displayed as a mercy seat by his blood to be received by faith, can we approach the throne of God? It's only because of his finished work that we can approach the throne of God. How is it that a just God can allow anyone into his presence? Jesus. How is it that any of us can fight sin? Jesus. To be received by faith. We're gonna have a time of communion, which we do uh, every week uh, here at Lower Town. We're gonna partake of these elements. <laughs> Someone spelled out mom uh, with the communion cups. That's, uh, that's clever. Uh, <laughs> Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> Yikes. This is serious. This is church. Uh, <laughs> that, uh, what a, that you have the wafer that represents the body of Christ. That's broken. The, the juice that represents his blood, right? It's by his blood, not a bowl sprinkled on a mercy seat that we can't even look at, that no longer is there a tabernacle with a veil covering the holy place of God, but now we can approach this holy table because of his finished work. And so I wanna read, we don't do this every week, but I wanna read Matthew chapter 26. When Jesus is doing this, when Jesus is actually um, uh, doing this and saying, I want you to look at me. I want you to, to observe and viscerally taste and drink my propitiation for you. And as we're gonna see next week, that a guy I am, that God can be just and demand justice and also be the justifier. Matthew 26, verse 26 says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink it, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood, 
of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. How do we approach a holy God? How do we enter into his presence? How do we partake of these elements? It's because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. How do I fight sin? It's because of the finished work of Christ on the cross or else it just becomes law and legalism and works and it will not work. Then he says this in verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine to that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. But there's gonna be a day that, that right now is Jesus is somewhere in his glorified body and that he's, he's not drinking juice or wine. He's not doing it. Because he said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wait. And there's gonna be a day, there's gonna be a time where Jesus is gonna take a, a, a glass of wine and he's gonna raise it to all of us. And he said, now we get to have this in, his, in my presence. We get to do this together. And until that day, we do this in remembrance of him. All I would ask is that you're a member, or not a member, sorry. You don't have to be a member of this church or any church. All I would ask is that you're a follower of Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you bend the knee to King Jesus and say, yes, you are the only one who can save, I would love for you to partake of this meal with us this morning. Uh, let me pray. And the worship team's gonna come. They're gonna play three songs for us this morning as we reflect on the goodness of Christ and his finished work. The one whom God publicly displayed as a mercy seat by his blood to be received by faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you just for our time again here this morning. I pray that um, as we partake of these elements, as we break the bread, as we eat the bread, that we remember your body that was crushed for us on the cross, that was lifted up, publicly displayed and humiliated. That as we drink the juice, that we would remember your finished work in the cross as your blood was spilt out to appease the wrath of God, the Father, to appease his justice that he demands because of who he is, but also become the justifier because God himself was the one whose blood was being shed. Pray that we'd remember that. We love you and thank you for all you're doing and will do. It's in Christ's name that we pray in Jesus, amen.